been a long journey. We have this app that you put on your phone. It's called Viber Phone. I don't know if some of you have this. It's a wonderful piece of technology that allows Shelly and I to talk over the internet, voice over IP. And so I opened the app and I called her and she opened her app and she received the phone call and we had a, a glorious 30 second conversation before the Wi-Fi in Haiti gave out. Um, and even the 30 second conversation that I had with my wife was uh, had delay. And you know, if you've uh, had someone who you've talked to overseas and it's a bad connection, there's a delay. So it's how are you, Shelly? Fine, David, how are you? Fine, Shelly. It's just, you know, and then we talk over each other and it's what did you say? And I was I was in the middle of a set. What? You know, it's just confusing. Got frustrated um, and I feel lonely. My house, I keep inviting people over, you know, because I'm just a people person and my two daughters are wonderful. But when they sleep or when they get tired, I need some energy. And I need some people in my life. And Shelly is not there. And so it's very lonely for me. Uh, and I just I, I don't even know what she you know ate for breakfast. I don't I just feel so disconnected from my wife and um, I'm beginning to feel much more lonely than I ever have. Um, I just I just remember those times when she would go away for a long time. I feel the same way. Uh, the psalmist feels that way, except he doesn't feel that way towards his wife. He feels that way towards God. And I know this is a common Christian experience. I would say common, but it is a unanimous. Everybody, 100% will feel this way towards God. You ever wonder why that is? You ever wonder why it's so difficult to talk to God? Think about prayer for a second. You have to shut your eyes and fold your hands. You don't have to do that if you talk to me personally. You don't. Shutting your eyes closes out the world. Folding your hands it keeps you from being busy because it's so hard to pray because you have to focus your mind and use all the imaginative mental capabilities that you have to focus on some someone so far away. And at, at, at the beginning point, when you're a kid, it feels like you're pretending to talk to God. You really feel like you're talking to the ceiling because he doesn't talk back. Like a, like a normal conversation. I know the scriptures teach us and I know it's the word of God. And if we want to hear the voice of God, we read scripture. I know that. I know God can speak through dreams. He can plant thoughts in our, our minds. He can use other people to, to say things to us. But why is it so difficult? Why can't we just have an Abraham God kind of conversation or a Moses God kind of conversation? Why does it have to be so difficult? And, and the reason is, of course, sin. God has left the camp. He has left the camp. Actually, we have left the camp in the garden. We've been exiled. But if you're using the terminology of the, the tabernacle, the glory of God comes down. He's left. He's, it's gone. It's, it's so far away because of our sin. Our sin has repelled God to a, a very, very distant place. And we are left feeling much like I'm feeling towards Shelley. Disconnected. I don't have a lot of information I need her daily and I can't have her. In Psalm 43, this psalmist is experiencing this. The psalmist is not David. It's not Asaph or another person. It's the son of Korah. Now, Korah, the name Korah comes from Numbers 16. This is the scene in the Bible 
when Korah and his group of followers rebelled against Moses and Aaron and said, Moses, you have gone too far. You've gone over the line. You have taken all of the authority that God has supposedly given you and you have lorded it over us. And you have made yourself king and, and made yourself the man of privilege. Enough is enough. Let's take the power that you hold, Moses, and give it to the people, said Korah. He was a man of the people, of course. And he wanted to give the power back to the people. Well, now Moses said, let's let God decide. You remember what happened? God said, Moses, just stand aside. I'm going to consume them. And it's like, you know, this feeling of like the, the flood of Noah. But he promised he would never do that again. So it's got to be fire or something else. The flood of just this, this anger and wrath. I'm going to consume these people. And, and Moses said, hold on, hold on, God, please. For one man's sin, will you consume an entire people? Now, God listened to Moses and said, OK, so Korah, you stand here with your gang and Israel, y'all move over here. And Israel's like, yes, sir. Got it. Okay, we're over here now. <laughs> and they're just waiting to see. The scriptures say in number 16 that Korah and his family and, and his rebellious followers stood at the tent entrance and just waited. And I don't know how long it, they waited, but it, it, I don't know if it was a 10 minute or five second. But the earth opened up and they went inside the earth. And then the earth closed. Okay, we're done. That's it. So that is Korah. Now the sons of Korah stepped back. Some of the distant relatives of Korah stepped back and they became the gatekeepers for the temple when it was built. When David was king, the sons of Korah were Levites. They were priests and they became the gatekeeper, meaning they opened it up in the morning and they shut it down at night and they managed all of the treasures inside the temple. This is who we're talking about. So the writer of this psalm, he understands rebellion. He understands very clearly. He has it in his mind what happens when you rebel against God. And we also know from Psalm 43, this son of Korah is in exile among the Gentiles. How do we know that? There are a number of verses that talk about him being far away from Jerusalem. Now, there's one more piece of background before we dive into the text Psalm 43 is the last half of a song. And you say, where's the first half of the song? Well, that's Psalm 42. And for some reason, Psalm 42 and 43 being one unit, somewhere in history was separated into two different chapters. And nobody really knows why and when it's happened, but, but it's there. It's fine. And the reason we know it's one unit is because if you read Psalm 42, you know there's a refrain. Why, oh soul, why is my soul so downcast? And turmoil within me. Hope in God and he will be my salvation. That's the refrain that happens three times in Psalm 42 and once in Psalm 43. So there's a verse and a chorus and a verse and a chorus and a third verse in 43 and a final chorus. So we're looking at that last verse and the final chorus. And you should feel that the song has been playing for a while. We've sung the first verse and the chorus the first time, the second verse and the chorus the second time. And this is the third verse. You know, it is well, the last verse. It, it's talking about God coming with a trumpet and even so it is well with my soul. Or how great thou art. You know, you, you talk about grandiose things in the third verse going into the third chorus. 
This is, this is Psalm 43. So this is really the meat of this song. He complains in Psalm 42, and then he see, we see a radical transformation happen in the life of this psalmist. And the transformation is, I am far away from God, and I'm angry and frustrated and accusing, changed into, I'm praising God, my exceeding joy. And the question before the house is, what happened there? What happened in Psalm 43? And if you read it just, you know, casually, you'll miss it. And I'll say this is a general principle. I'll push pause for a second. And just as a side note, this is a general principle of the Bible, is it not? That if you read it casually, you'll miss it. You'll miss the meat of what it's actually trying to say. And even more so in Psalms. Psalms is so packed Full and rich with meaning. I mean, if you're reading Ruth, it's a narrative. This is what happened in the story. This person went here. This person said this. This Isn't that great? And there is one verse we all remember. Your people shall be my people. You know, there's certain phrases. But generally, we don't pick it apart and analyze it. But in, in a song, the songwriter is writing poetry, lyrics. He's, he's very careful about each and every word he chooses because he has a limited number of, of space to put these words in. So he's very careful. So you and I, as we look at Psalm 43, are going to be very careful to look at the words and understand what he's saying and why he's saying it. Why did he use that word and not this word? And then before your eyes, some great, wonderful news will unfold. And the secret to living in exile will be known this morning. We are all in exile from God, and we need this message greatly. Let's pray before we dive into Psalm 43. Father God, we feel so very far away from you. We feel like that deer that pants for water. We feel like tears coming out of our eyes are our only food. We feel, although we know it's not true, we feel that you have forgotten us, that you have disgraced us, that you have left us behind and forsaken us. And in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 43, Lord, you have forgotten us. Why have you done that? Why do we feel this way? Help us this morning find the eternal truth. Give us light. And may we be changed as much as this psalmist was. So that we can stand and sing your praises. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so let's dig in a little bit. The psalmist focuses on three things. Two of them are wrong. One of them is right. It's just like a baseball player. He's at the home plate and he's ready to hit. Ball one is pitched. He swings with all his might, but he's looking at his grandma in the stands. So he swings. Hey, Grandma, watch this. Oh, strike. (laughs) you got to keep your eye on the ball. So he focuses wrong. The second strike comes. Same thing. He focuses on something else. He, He misses. It's a strike. The third ball comes. And for the psalmist, he gets it right on the third time because he focuses on the right thing. So what did he focus on that might have hurt him more than help him? First, he focuses on the problem. Now, this is. General application for all problems. You and I, when we face our problems, financial difficulties, relational problems, any kind of problem we might have, 
physical problems, we, we look at that and sometimes we overfocus on the problem. And what happens do what happens do, do I ask? What happens when you focus merely on the problem? Well, what does the psalmist do? Vindicate me, O God. <laughs> and defend my cause un, against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. Why? Because I deserve it. You know what vindicate means? Vindicate doesn't mean repair my broken reputation. I've blown it. Please help me repair what I've messed up. Vindicate doesn't mean that. Vindicate means it was unjustly accused of me. It was unjustly said of me. It's not true. So he's proclaiming his own, his own rightness. Whether that's true or not. <laughs> well, I don't know. The psalmist is defending himself. We are always the first to defend ourselves. As a sixth grade teacher, I remember vividly, the pencil is on the desk of the student. The pencil rolls off the desk. The student looks down for his pencil. Someone stole my pencil. He defends himself. It couldn't be my fault. Someone else did it. We always defend ourselves, don't we? Here's an example of this. What happens when you print in the newspaper that a former president of the United States, quote, gets drunk, not infrequently? Well, that's exactly what happened in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, Marquette County, in 1912. A local newspaper called the Iron Ore, written by a man named George Newitt, accused Theodore Roosevelt of public drunkenness. In an editorial, the result was a libel trial that not only made history locally, but nationally as well. It was a mean-spirited piece. I'm reading a, a description of it. It was a mean-spirited piece, and one paragraph in particular made accusations. And here's what he said, or wrote. Roosevelt lies and curses in a most disgusting way. He gets drunk, too, and that not infrequently. And all of his intimates know about it. Well... President Roosevelt, the former President Roosevelt, sued George Newitt in court. And it seemed that George Newitt was being attacked from all sides. He didn't have a prayer to make it through this case because Roosevelt brought the power of his entire office in secret service. And he I mean, included and he also brought 25 high standing, well-known witnesses to his defense. In court, Roosevelt himself reiterated virtually every time he took a drink, which, of course, it read like a travel log and an adventurer's dream. Just imagine that court scene. There were tales of the days of the Rough Riders, recountings of the journey down the Nile, memories of the presidency, tales of hunts and campfires. Roosevelt brought in all these witnesses, Rough Riders, statesmen like Admiral Admiral George Dewey, the Secretary of the Navy, and the Surgeon General. Time after time, these witnesses defended Roosevelt. Now, George knew it held out for five days before finally giving up. And in a prepared statement on the stand, he gave up and admitted that he was, in fact, wrong. Now, Roosevelt stands up on the stand. And he can ask for damages. Roosevelt stood up. Listen to what he said. This is all I've been waiting for. 
This is what I want. And then he asked to be rewarded the least amount possible. The settlement was six cents. So Roosevelt had only sought to restore his reputation, falsely accused. Now, I feel like doing that weekly with my wife, with some of you in this room, with people, my kids, everybody. I just feel like vindicating myself all the time. I want to vindicate myself. And if I had the power of Theodore Roosevelt, I would. I'd make a I'd make a huge court case and I would stand up and say, this is what I was waiting for. You see, well, that's what happens when you focus on the problem. You defend yourself. You insult the enemy. And then he does something even worse. Look at verse two. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Think about the words he he chose there. Why have you rejected me? I mean, shouldn't he say, God, it feels like you've rejected me. Have you? It sure feels that way. I want to ask you a question. Have you? Why didn't he do that? He knew. He, He already had concluded in his mind that God had, in fact, rejected him. And he's asking why. In Psalm 42 and in Psalm 44, the same theme comes up. He says, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten about me? Why have you left me? Okay, why? So he is making a statement to God. He's he's not only insulting his enemies, he's looking at God and insulting God and saying, you have left me, you have forgotten me. And that's just not true. And that's what happens when we focus on the problem. We get angry. Well, that's the first strike. What's the second strike? (laughs) He focuses on himself. Now, it's good to focus on yourself. And he does that in verse 2. Listen, he changes his tune at the end of verse 2. Why have you rejected me? And then he says, Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And so those three words, why do I? He's focusing. You see what he's doing? He's turning it now. He's saying, I'm suffering here. Why why do I go about mourning? And that's a good question. We all need to ask that question. We all need to do this. But he stays there a little little bit too long. Watch what he does in verse 3. What he's asking for in verse 3 is what he lacks. And it gives us a window into how he feels. He says, send out your light because I'm in the dark. Send out your truth because I have lies and I think I might be believing them. I need truth. I can't see anything. I'm I'm blind. Let them bring me to your holy hill. In other words, he needs leadership because he's lost. He's blind. He's believing lies. He's got doubts. And he can't find his way back. He cannot go 
where he wants to go. And then finally, verse 4, then I will go, and he goes to one place. If he's walking into the temple, if, if somehow I could not be in exile anymore, and I could go to the temple, the place where God meets his people, I can't do that over here. I have to do that over there. So I'm going to the temple. The first thing he does is not praise God. The first thing he does is he recognizes his need for an altar. And he says, I need an altar. Of all the things in the temple, I just, I need an altar. I need a place to go for my sin. So I'm, I'm blind. I'm lost. I can't get back. I need leadership. Lead me, please. And then lead me to one place in particular, to the altar where my sin comes and is forgiven. Now, this, this, I characterize this as a strike because it's good to think of your sin. It is very good to think of your sin. And it's, it's good to stop insulting others and vindicating yourself and, and insulting even God. It's good to move into, I might be at fault here, right? I might be at fault here. But not everything that you will suffer is your fault. Not everything you suffer is a consequence of a sin that you have committed. It, 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 there's no connection there. It, it may be a consequence of someone else's decision that you're facing. It may be a disease that you just get and nobody knows why. It may be something you can't draw a line connecting your consequence to an act that you did. And so if you stay there and you say, why am I mourning? It must be sin. It must be something that I've done. If you stay there. You'll miss it. And he doesn't miss it. Thankfully, the third ball comes across and he hits it and he hits a home run. The third focus, he he takes off of himself and he puts it onto God. One thing we, before we get to that last point, there's something of a divided soul represented here in Psalm 43. It happens a lot in Scripture. You have a division in your heart. You want to serve God. You want to focus on God. But you, you, just, you, you just can't. You, got, you have a problem. You just can't get over it. You, you, you have guilt. Guilty people make other people feel guilty. You can always tell how guilty a person is by how guilty you feel in their presence. Free people make people feel free. That's a quote from Steve Brown. I thought it was very helpful. So ruminating there, staying there, having a division in your soul is not helpful. It's like a, the disciples in the stormy boat. Jesus rebukes two things that day. The storm and the disciples' lack of faith, lack of focus on him. You and I are not integrated, whole, unified people. Our hearts are multi-divided. It's like we have in our hearts like this boardroom, right? This, this table with leather chairs all around and everybody gets a bottle of water and there's a whiteboard on the, on the wall and you sit down and, and your divided self sits down. You've got your social self. You've got your intellectual self. 
You've got your private self, your work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, all the different selves come around the table. And you're divided into all these different directions. And you have all these passions and desires going left and right and up and down and all over the place. And this committee called your heart is always arguing and agitating and voting on the next decision that you're going to make in your life. Rarely, if ever, does this committee come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. We tell ourselves we're this way because we're so busy And we have so many responsibilities. We have many hats that we wear. But the truth is, we're we're divided. We're unfocused. We're always hesitant. And that's how we stay bound. So the third pitch comes across. And the division of his heart is settled. Watch what he does. Let's read verse 4. It's a very important comma. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. To God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my, my God. He is establishing a reconnection. The law can convict you of your sin and a need for a savior, can lead you to the altar where you have a sacrifice. But the law never saves. It only drives us to salvation. It's not merely salvation from a problem. It's not merely salvation from our own sin. Salvation is to something. It's to God. You're not just freed from all these bad things. What are you freed to? You're freed to God. So, how do we do this? How do we go to God when we're in exile? And this is the part that's difficult. Let me bring in a passage from John 21. You remember this passage where Jesus asks Peter a question that he never asked ever again or before that time. Do you love me? Do you consider me to be your exceeding joy? Am I the object of your attention? Am I your focus? Do you love me, Peter? Now, what happened What happened before Jesus asked that question? Well, Peter was chosen. That's the first thing that happened. You remember that? Not of something he did, but Jesus just chose him. And he chose him for a great adventure. A fisher of men. And then Peter joined Jesus after being chosen. And Peter witnessed miracle after miracle after miracle. And some of those miracles benefited Peter himself. And as he, as he experienced these miracles, he also participated in the miracles. And then he heard Jesus' teachings. So as time went on, Jesus was reorienting Peter's mind and refocusing his attention to, to, to himself as the focus of his life. And then importantly, Peter fell. 
Can you love God without falling? There's a better question. Can you love God without knowing that you've fallen? Peter fell hard. He betrayed Jesus, and he knew it. One scripture describes that Peter looked at Jesus and right at that third betrayal, and he knew. And he felt the shame and the grief and the guilt. It was so heavy on his shoulders. And then Jesus restored Peter, loved Peter. Peter was fully known and fully loved by Jesus. And then Jesus looks at Peter and then he says this question, not before. If, if Jesus were to walk up to Peter, the fisherman, before all of that and said, do you love me? It wouldn't matter because Peter doesn't even know what that means. He doesn't even know Jesus. He doesn't even know his own sin. How could Peter possibly answer that question? So as Peter goes through this whole experience of, of these highs and lows and forgiveness and grace, then Peter can stand and answer, yes, I love you. Son of Korah, who writes Psalm 42 and 43, be in Jerusalem and close to God. Be exiled somewhere far away and long for Jerusalem. And then find God. That's how Peter did it. That's how the psalmist did it. That's how you and I are going to do it. It doesn't sound like a three-step plan. There's no program here. There's no ten-step plan to the intimacy with God. You have to experience life with God. Invite God, invite Jesus with you into your life. And every experience you have, he's there with you. Experience with him. Experience it with him. So quit trying. The idea here is quit trying to do something you can't do. Stop trying to be something you'll never be. In fact, don't do anything at all. There's no effort here to fall in love with God. Simply let God love you. Here's a quote. The preacher who is a law driver insists with threats and penalties, but a preacher of grace lures and incites with divine goodness and compassion shown to us. For he wants, God wants no unwilling works and reluctant service. God wants joyful and delightful services. That was Martin Luther who wrote that. Simply let God love you. First John says this. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love. Why did Peter love? Because he first loved us. So that's it. Just let God love you. The time will come after a while when almost not even knowing it, you will find that you love him back. 
Well, that's where Psalm 43 ends. I laugh sometimes when um, new youth leaders come into the youth ministry and I draw this grandiose vision of, you know, meeting teens at the point of their need. And this is how we do ministry here. And here's a couple of great stories of leaders that have gone uh, before you and have reached teens in successful ways. And isn't this wonderful? And, 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 and they sit back and the first question they have uh, is, how do, how do I do that? What, what do I do? How do I get started? What, how, do you, how do you become that kind of leader? And, and I always kind of sit back and laugh, and I think, I have the same question. But you know the answer. The answer is abundantly simple. Love them. Be with them. Talk to them. Experience life together with them. And, and I, I usually just say it in these words. I can't give you a list of things to do. I mean, I can, but it'd be so artificial it's not even worth looking at, right? Uh, what would I say? What would my list be to, to engage with a teen? What would that be? How do you engage with someone? Well, here it is. You get to know them. You find out what their needs are. You help meet those needs. You listen to them and you love them where they are. That's, that's what you do. It's the same way with God. There's no, there's no like steps you can, you can formulate and do every time you feel distant from God. What it is is invite him in to every part of your life. And experience life with God. And before you know it, you too will be saying that God is your exceeding joy. Now, he asks himself this question. This is a very good thing to do. Preaching to yourself. This is what he does in Psalm 42 and 43. Verse 5. He now understands God and where he is. And, and is, it, God is actually the joy of his life. God is not a tool to solve a problem. God is not a tool to even deal with his own sin so he can feel vindicated. No, God is the goal. And once he gets that, he turns on himself. This psalmist turns on himself and he writes these words. Why are you cast down, O my soul? It's just like Jesus in the stormy boat. Disciples, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? And then he says, why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. God, it's difficult for us to not have a list of things to actually do. And so, Lord, with this relationship that we have with you, we pray, God, that you would help us move towards you, that we would acknowledge your presence in every part of our life. Father, help us to open up and speak honestly to you, just like the psalmist did, and express to you all of the emotions that are flowing through us. But we ask that you wouldn't just stop there, that you would move us through those emotions and into this love relationship that we should have with you. Father, I pray for the one that's here that has no idea what we're even talking about. They've come and and maybe have never prayed a prayer in their life. And so I pray for that person, Lord, that you would open up their heart and love them 
Father, we pray for this offering that you would use these gifts to further your kingdom in this world so that the gospel may be proclaimed everywhere. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.